have a Bible today, let's open up to Matthew chapter 21. As today we get to uh, celebrate Palm Sunday. Isn't it cool? Did you guys get a palm? We can all wave them right now, man. <laughs> you know, and but of course they had the whole leaf, you know, so I'm sorry we kind of gypped you a little bit. But, you know, you can visualize them just waving these branches as Jesus is coming down uh, uh, and towards Jerusalem uh, through the Kidron Valley. And, uh, and they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Now, do you guys know what Hosanna means? Save now. Save now. And I was just thinking about that in so many ways, how I would pray that prayer, Lord, save now. Like even today, if you don't know the Lord, God, save people now. Lord, touch hearts today. But Jesus, come today. And I don't, I don't know if you guys realize this or not, but it, we pray, we're supposed to pray that prayer every day. I, I, I still pray the Our Father. I don't know if you guys do or not. It's okay to do that as long as you mean it, right? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then I kind of dwell on that, and I think about my Father, and I think about how holy his name is. But I, I pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, you know, Lord, come. We're, he said we can pray that prayer, come. Lord Jesus, come. And as the church is praying that, I think there's a, a contribution that we have in, you know, ushering in his, you know, second coming. And so not only coming, uh, you know, visibly for the thousand-year reign of Christ, the rapture, all that, but also come and reign in me. You know, come and, and let your will be done in my heart. And so anyways, you know, Hosanna is saved now. Lord, come. And that's what this whole day was about as they're worshiping. It's an amazing, amazing day. Palm Sunday, this day is unlike any other day. You know, it's the Sunday before the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, you know, Palm Sunday, we get that from John 12, 13, just in case you didn't know the exact reference. You know, it says that on that day, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him as he entered into Jerusalem. And so it's called Palm Sunday. It's also called Jesus' triumphal entry. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And the reason they named that, uh, that day that is because the palm branch was a symbol of victory. Just in case you didn't know that, you know, this is a symbol of victory for them. We read, for example, in Leviticus 23.40, And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Because when God brought them out of Egypt, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, and so God had provided a place for them. It was just all part of the celebration of victory, you know? And so it's an expression of celebration on the holy day, you know? And so, you know, it's interesting. You look back in time uh, there in the Old Testament and how they would use a palm branch to celebrate victory. And then you also look forward in time. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, there's a significant passage there that looks forward. And it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, 
clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so, you know, we're going to have some pretty amazing palm branches there in, in, in Revelation. It talks about that. And uh, we're going to be waving them to him. And what it is is a scene from heaven where the people declare the victory of Christ with palm branches in their hands. And so, you know, Palm Sunday, uh, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem as he rides uh, a donkey from the Mount of Olives down through the Kidron Valley. If you go to Israel with us, you'll be able to go with us through this whole route. And just, you know, it's kind of cool walking it. And then he goes up into Jerusalem. They're waving these branches, laying their clothes on the road, and which was a common custom in the east to, to kind of cover the path, kind of like roll out the red carpet for someone they thought who was worthy of honor. And so uh, today as we go through our study in, in uh, Luke, Matthew 21, three things uh, are the primary outline. Number one is the transportation. We're going to see the donkey in Matthew 21, 1 through 6. And then, and secondly, is the presentation, and that is the day. And this is so amazing, the day. And that's in Matthew 21, 7 through 11. And then we'll close today with, uh, it's either lamentation or celebration. And we're going to see the decision that needs to be made. And for that, we're going to go to Luke 19, uh, 41 through 44. But first, the transportation. And, And we read in Matthew 21, In verse 1, it says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. And so Jesus and his disciples, they come now uh, to a village, a village called Bethphage. We read that there in verse 1. And so it's at the Mount of Olives, about two and a half miles away from Jerusalem. And as they arrive there, he sends two of his disciples into the next village to bring his transportation uh, for the rest of the journey. And so uh, they were to go and just kind of loose the animal, you know, take the animal And so when the owner would question them, Jesus said, all you have to do is tell them the Lord has need of them. And and so in looking at this, a couple of quick side notes. Number one, I think it's interesting how the Lord had to borrow uh, transportation. Any of you here, maybe you don't have a car yet, set of curiosity. You have to get rides and take the bus and stuff. Listen, you know, the Lord knows how you feel just in case you're ever there. He didn't have a, a, a ride. He didn't have uh, much. Uh, if you read the Bible closely, you're going to notice that he had to actually borrow a, a lot of things. Um, later, when it was time to teach about money, he had to borrow a coin. 
earlier when it was time to preach about um, uh, you know the the word the crowds were you know pressing he had to borrow a boat you know a couple of times when he fed the people he even had to borrow food and so the day would come you guys know for him to be buried he had to borrow a grave but just for a few days right just for the weekend <laughs> but it just goes to show you it just goes to show you that um, you know we don't read anywhere in the Bible about Jesus possessing any personal property other than his clothing. You know, and, and to me, I just it's fascinating. You would figure, you know, if he's going to be traveling, maybe he'd have houses in different cities and stuff. But the Bible says that the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. You know, he had to bundle up on a bench or rest on a rock. And sometimes he stayed at a friend's house. Uh, apparently, uh, when you read the Bible... And for him, he traveled light. He really did. And there's a lesson for us there, isn't there? Another interesting side note is the way that Jesus was able to see into the next town. You know, he saw exactly where the cult was. He knew its geography. And according to Luke 19, verse 30, he knew its history. He knew that no one had ever ridden that cult. And so he would be the first to break it in. And that even in of itself was a miracle it was a display of his majesty over creation. And so, you know, just you can read through it and maybe not catch it, but, you know, it's good to look at this. He, he saw, he knew everything in advance, exactly what they would say, what they would ask, and he knew what the proper response should be. And so, you know, in looking at the Lord like this, I think these little side notes can help us in life. You know, number one, beware of materialism. The stuff we accumulate. Sometimes it's more right to travel light. Pray about possessions because if you get too many of them, they might possess you. They might hinder the calling of God on your life. Now, money's not bad, but the love of money is. And sometimes stuff, too much stuff, it gets in the way. Okay? And, and another thing is just to really listen to the Lord. Because he knows everything about everyone and everything. You know, not just donkeys, but disciples and, and destinies, right? And that's why I think it's important for us to be faithful in our devotions. Devotions are you waking up in the morning every single day, or maybe for you it's at noontime or maybe at, at night, but somewhere you carve out some time in the day to, to just sit at the Lord's feet and listen to Jesus. Listen to his words. Listen to his instructions. Get your marching orders from your general. Because what we see is that he knows everything and everyone. And he sees everything and he knows what's ahead. And he'll tell you, you know, what they're going to say or what you need to say a lot of times. And so for me, when I read this right here, it just really brings me to that place you know, and what we find is that he knows when to send us, where to send us, and even what we're to say as he sends us. And so we can't miss that here. And so anyways, you know, Jesus borrows a donkey for transportation. Do you ever wonder why? Why did he borrow a donkey? You know, was he getting tired? Anyone here think he was getting tired? Is that why? I have a feeling he wasn't. He walked a lot, Right. And so, um, you know, what was it? Did he want to cruise? You know, kind of look cool on a donkey? No, verses 4 and 5 tell this why. It says, all this was done. 
that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is why. This is why he had to borrow a donkey. Because 500 years earlier, there was a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that when the king came, he would come on a donkey. It was in fulfillment of this scripture. And, and you know, you read it in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that this would be the sign of the king, the savior, the donkey would be determined and it happened that when it happened, they would know it was happening. That was the whole point of the donkey. And so uh, why a donkey to fulfill the prophecy? And then secondly, uh, well, why did it even say it had to be that way? And I think it's number letter B to show his gentleness, you know, to come in on, on a donkey, right? Uh, not only was it a sign to see, but it also displayed his heart of humility. So if you were the king, and I know that's hard to think about, but how many of you here would come in on a stallion instead? On a white stallion, man, or maybe a black one or something, you know, some glorious horse, you know, or, or a chariot, at least a, maybe a chariot, you know, because you're the king, right? I mean, none of us here would choose a donkey, I don't think, you know? I don't know if you've ever ridden a donkey. Have any of you guys ever done that? I think they have that in certain places where you can travel, maybe the Grand Canyon stuff. They're slow. They're slow. And, you know, um, but here's the Lord on a donkey. And uh, because what we see is the donkey not only shows us who he is, but it, it, it shows us how he is, how he is. And that's very important for us. You know, uh, again, uh, look at verse 5. Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly. You might want to circle that word. Lowly. And sitting on a donkey, the colt, the foal of the donkey, right? The Hebrew word from Zechariah translated lowly is usually translated to be poor and afflicted. And it, and it deeply carries with it the concept of humility, and then you have not only the Hebrew word in Zechariah, but the Greek word in Matthew. It speaks of someone who's meek and mild and gentle in spirit. And so for us, you know, it, it's important to understand this is the nature of God. This is how he deals with us, you know, especially if we're hurting. You know, so when the king came, you know, you got to know who he is, but I pray we would also know how he is. I've always loved that passage in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, where Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, Jesus said, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And the context in which Jesus spoke that there in Matthew 11 was a context where all, the religious leaders were placing heavy burdens on the people, you know, and they were cracking the whip and they were harsh with people. 
And even, you know, you, you read throughout history, Paul was talking about the, the, the Judaizers that came into the Corinthian church, and you had leaders that would, you know, slap them around and, and just mistreat them. And Jesus was trying to communicate, and it's important for us to know who God is. That's, that's not how God is. He's not, you know, harsh. He's not mean. He's not overbearing. Listen, He, he did all the hard work when He died for us on the cross. All you have to do is enter in to that place of forgiveness and acceptance and love. This is who we are as a church. You know, Jesus is gentle. And it's important for us to capture that as we go through this. You know, and therefore we're to be gentle as well. You know, uh, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 5, it says, Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. And so... You know, not just, you know, you know the leaders. Uh, the, the leaders are definitely uh, supposed to be gentle. When Paul wrote, wrote to Timothy, he said, you're supposed to be gentle. But for all Christians, it, it's supposed to be so obvious in, in, in our hearts that, that we, that we uh, are known for our gentleness. We're not the people that are mean, that hold up signs to say, you know, God hates whoever. No, that's not our approach. We are to love people. We are to be patient. We are to be compassionate. Because that's how God is with us. Watch what you say and watch the way that you say it. I pray that we would come to a place where we're good representatives of our Lord Jesus Christ who came lowly on that donkey that day. You know, I was reading one uh, article by a man named Jerry Bridges, who I, I like this guy a lot because he's so biblically rooted. But he suggests uh, these strategies for obeying the biblical injunction for gentleness. He said, first of all, show respect for the personal dignity of other people. When someone disagrees with God's word and you need to share the truth, attempt to persuade them with kindness rather than harsh words of intimidation. Right? Secondly, he said, avoid blunt speech and abrupt manner. Be sensitive to others. When it is necessary to wound, include encouragement with the incision. I think that's wise. Thirdly, he said, don't be threatened by opposition. Gently instruct asking God to dissolve the opposition. What I've seen a lot of times, and even in the Christian church or even in the conservative community, is if people don't agree with you, you know what they like to do? They like to demonize others. Be careful. And then the last thing he said is, is do not belittle, degrade, or gossip you know, about people, a brother or sister who has fallen. Instead, grieve and pray for their repentance. Because if you think about it, you know, um, when you got one finger pointing, there's three pointing right back at you, right? I mean, how many of you here are grateful that God has been gentle with you? Seriously, man. I mean, because he, I know he has with me, that's for sure. And there's a Latin proverb that says, there is nothing stronger than gentleness. Power can do by gentleness what violence can never do. And so here we see Jesus riding in Jerusalem. It's a sign of the Savior for all to see. 
First of all, fulfilling prophecy. Secondly, demonstrating his gentleness. And then thirdly, coming into uh, Jerusalem on a donkey, it means he offers peace. So he's offering peace to them. In the Hebrew culture, whenever a king rode in on a donkey, it meant that was his objective. I've come in peace. We see this, for example, in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 33, when David chose the next king to succeed him. In order to make his will publicly and peacefully known, he had his son Solomon ride through town on a donkey. And so, um, you know, you read the context there, and one of his other sons had tried to say he was king. If David wanted to, he could muster up an army and go and wipe out the opposition. But he said, no, the way that I'm going to, you know, give this, you know, message to the world, you know, make this transition is I'm just going to have my son Solomon ride on a donkey. And that would be the transition of peace. And understand that that's how Jesus has come. I love the song that we were singing earlier about how the Lord is the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he's also the lamb, right? The lamb that was slain. As Jesus has come the first time, understand this is how he has come. He has come to proclaim peace. And any, anyone who wants that peace, man, you can have that, right? And that's why he came this first time. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, in reference to the believer, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when you sin, you become an enemy of God. You separate yourself from God. And uh, if you're an enemy of God and you're fighting with God, who do you think is going to win? <laughs> you do not want to be an enemy of God, but he doesn't want you to be an enemy either. And that's why he sent his son to die on a cross, that as you express your faith in Christ, you can then have peace with God. And that's the way it works, right? Have you guys ever seen that, that bumper sticker? Uh, it says, no Jesus, no peace. Um, and then it has like the trick words in there, N-O Jesus, no Jesus, no peace. That's just the simple way it works. Do you want peace? The peace with God? How about the peace of God? I'll tell you what, as a Christian, it is so cool to have that peace. Yeah, we got a lot of trials. Yeah, you wonder about this person, that or the other. But it doesn't fluster you. It doesn't ruffle your feathers. You're not sweating it out whatsoever. Why? Because you know that you're right with God. You know, I, I don't have anything against anybody. And I, I love the Lord. I'm doing the best that I can. And you just have this peace that surpasses understanding. That's what happens when, you know, you're a Christian and you understand who you are in Christ. You know that no matter what we're going through, no matter what the trial is, no matter what the struggle is, I mean, we just always go back to Romans 8.28, how he works all things together for good, right? All things. And that includes even our failures. God is an awesome God. And so as he comes uh, on the donkey, though, he's offering peace. He's, you know, saying, will you, will you guys accept peace, right? And, and we're going to see later they have to make a decision on that. And so looking at the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, 
We see the transportation on the donkey to fulfill prophecy, to show his gentleness and to offer peace. And, and then, uh, secondly, we see the presentation. And so look at verse 7 of Matthew 21. It says, And they, and they brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road, Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And then John tells us they're also waving, right? Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved. And the the Greek word is where we get our word seismic. There was like an earthquake, man, saying, who is this? And so the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. And so the transportation and and then this, the presentation. And this is huge. Because up to this point, in his ministry, Jesus had never purposely drawn attention to himself. He had never, you know, openly, completely presented himself as the Messiah, you know, to the public, right? As a matter of fact, we read him over and over again saying, don't tell anyone. For example, in Matthew 8, 4, Jesus said to the leper that he healed, see that you tell no one. Or in the region of Decapolis, in Mark 7, verse 36, when Jesus healed a man who was deaf-mute, He commanded them that they should tell no one. See the same thing in Mark chapter 9 in verse 9. After the apostles saw Jesus transfigured in front of their eyes, said, tell no one uh, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so we see it over and over again, even in Caesarea Philippi, which is one of the most significant events in the Bible, when Peter just point blank explicitly said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, you know, uh, Jesus said, Blessed are you, you know, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood is not revealed to you, my Father's in heaven. Right? But he goes on and he tells them, But tell no one. Tell no one. He strictly warned them there in Mark chapter 8, verse 30, as they came down uh, the mountain. And so, up to this point, Jesus never drew attention to himself, right? But now, this day is different. He plans it out, he prepares it out, he goes and gets that donkey. You know, and Jesus fulfilled a lot of prophecies in the Bible, but this is really the only one that he had his hand in. That he explicitly made sure, I, I got to do this in order to fulfill, fulfill prophecy. And so what had happened was that the time had now come. This was the day. This was the day. You know, in verse 10, the entire city is moved. They're asked who it was. And verse 11, uh, notice again, it says this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. The multitudes are there. Uh, Josephus, who's a historian, he tells us that that that, uh, uh, Passover, 256,000 lambs were slain. And so that tells us that there were probably about 3 million people there. And so all the masses are there. All the multitudes are there. They're camping on the side of the road. And what we find is these people are quoting, they're quoting Psalm 118, verse 26. It says, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. 
they all knew, the Jews all knew that that was a psalm that specifically referenced the Messiah. They knew it. And so here they are in the moment fulfilling prophecy, right? And, and so it's interesting. Uh, how, many, how many of you know what's the, the longest psalm in the Bible? 119. Do you know what the loudest psalm in the Bible is? Psalm 118. <laughs> when they're just screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna. I mean, and it's so loud in, in, in a lot of different ways. And I want you to go to, to Daniel chapter 9, and I'm going to try my best to do this really quick because God has been convicting me to try to finish on time. Your prayers are not in vain. But this is so epic. It is so huge. I cannot explain to you. I mean, if you don't, I mean, if you're looking for a sign, if you're looking like for the sign or lightning to come from heaven, this is it, man. In Daniel 9, in 24 through 27, notice what we read here. It's the 70 weeks of Daniel. In Daniel 9, it says, um, let me get there. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. So Gabriel's talking to Daniel, who's a Jew. Seventy weeks are determined for who? For the Jews and for your holy city, which would be what? Jerusalem, right? To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. What does cut off mean? Killed, right? But, but not for himself. Messiah would be killed. Who would he be killed for? For us. But he tells them here, but it's going to take 69 weeks, you know, seven weeks and then 62 weeks. It comes to 69 weeks. That's 69 seven-year periods. And so, you know, again, I just have a couple of minutes here, but you know, seven in the Bible is a significant number. I mean, you read it over and over again. Uh, uh, 490 years from Abraham to the Exodus. 490 years from Exodus to the temple. 490 years here, the temple to the Edith of Artaxerxes. And this period of 490 years or 77-year periods is amazing to me. If you have a chance, there's a brilliant book written by Sir Robert Anderson, who was an investigator with the Scotland Yard, and he turned his investigative skills to the book of Daniel, and he wrote a whole commentary in the book of Daniel, and you have to be super smart to read it, but it is an absolute masterpiece, and in chapter 8, he identifies the exact days that you know, we need to look at according to all the historical events, and then in chapter 10 of his book, he identifies this prophecy, how it comes to pass. Because in March 14th, 445 B.C., 
Artaxerxes issued the command to restore and build Jerusalem, which is exactly what he says here. And so you travel forward, uh, um, you know, the 69 seven-year periods, 173,880 days. He factors in about 111 leap years, all the different things. And it comes to April 6, 32 AD, the very day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And that's exactly what this prophecy is right here. Look again, verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And it's just so clear in prophecy. You know, you go to Psalm 118, real quick, go to Psalm 118. This is the one that they're quoting from. And look at verse 24. It says, well, you look at verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Who's that? It's Jesus, right? This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. And he says right here in verse 24, this is the day the Lord has made, we will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, I know we like to, you know, use that psalm for every day. This is the day the Lord has made, and it's true. But no, this is the day is in reference to the day that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. You know, and you try to share the prophecy with people, and sometimes they don't understand it, but to me... It is such a faith builder to know. You know, and you just begin to put everything together. You know, did you know that one of the fascinating things is prior to the Passover, that the Sunday before the Passover is when the Jews would choose their lamb, their Passover lamb. Did you know that? It's amazing to me. And here's Jesus presenting himself to them on the Sunday before the Passover. 1 Corinthians 5.7, it says, Christ is our Passover, right? He sacrificed for us. And so, again, looking at our, our text, we see, number one, the transportation. Number two, the presentation. Now he just makes it final. He makes it formal. He enters into Jerusalem on a donkey. He offers himself to the people. And the question is, would they really accept him? Of course, we know they were fulfilling prophecy and they were waving their palm branches. You know, they were caught up in the whole thing and they were thinking, probably they were thinking, well, now our Messiah is going to set up his king and he's going to overthrow the Romans. That's what they're thinking. They're thinking so temporal. When Jesus is thinking eternal, when Jesus is coming to wash away their sins, have you come to Christ with that decision? Not just church, not just religion, not just kind of caught up in the crowd or going with the flow. Well, this is what a lot of people do in the United States of America on Sunday mornings. No. I mean, is it, is it true? Because for them, for the most of them, it wasn't true. For most of them, the same ones that were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, you know, just a few days later would be saying, crucify him, crucify him. I mean, my prayer is that it's genuine, that you're really, truly believers in the Lord Jesus Christ as he presents himself to you, that when you say save now, you're not talking about a political kingdom. 
that when you say save now, when you say Hosanna, you're talking about yourself. Lord, save me. Save me, Lord. Because I'm a sinner. And I need you to wash away my sins. Because really that's the way it all works out. You know, in closing, I'd like you to go to Luke 19. Because Jesus knew some were sincere, but most weren't. And so when Jesus goes in, then he he then leaves. And as he's looking over the city, in verse 41, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. Luke 19, 42, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this, your day. Now again, please, uh, underline or circle the word your day. Your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation you know and it's kind of like when you look at this right here the time of your visitation when Jesus comes into your life and he says follow me I want to give you peace I want to I want to wash you in my love I have a, a, a life for you that you can't even begin to imagine. And all you have to do is say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Come into my life. But they didn't. You know, they chose their own life. And so Jesus came and he just wept over the city. And the the Greek word translated lamentation there, it's just loud, you know, wailing cries. That's God's heart. The Bible says that God doesn't rejoice in the death of the wicked. He mourns. But you have to make a decision. And so, as we close today, prayerfully, all of you have given your life to Christ, you know, knowing we're sinners in need of a Savior, but Lord, come into my life. And if you haven't, that you would do it right now. Say, Jesus, I, I, I need you. Come into my life and be my Lord and Savior. I follow you from this day forward. I know you died for me on a cross and rose again. And as you do that, that this day, it, it, can you go either two way, e- ways? Either it's a lamentation or it's a celebration. Prayerfully, uh, Palm Sunday. Woo. It's a celebration, man. Okay? And even if you're like, man, I don't know, it's hard. Listen, uh, God wants to give you peace today. And so I pray um, you would take that off.